Mliss, part two from Selected Stories by Bret Hart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Selected Stories by Bret Hart. Mliss, chapter three. Somewhat less spiteful in her intercourse with other scholars, Mliss still retained an offensive attitude in regard to Clytemnestra. Perhaps the jealous element was not entirely lulled in her passionate little breast. Perhaps it was only that the round curves and plump outline offered more extended pinching surface. But while such ebullitions were under the master's control, her enmity occasionally took a new and irrepressible form. The master, in his first estimate of the child's character, could not conceive that she had ever possessed a doll. But the master, like many other professed readers of character, was safer in a posteriori than a priori reasoning. Mliss had a doll but then it was emphatically Mliss's doll, a smaller copy of herself. Its unhappy existence had been a secret discovered accidentally by Mrs. Morpher. It had been the old-time companion of Mliss's wanderings, and bore evident marks of suffering. Its original complexion was long since washed away by the weather, and anointed by the slime of ditches. It looked very much as Mliss had in days past. Its one gown of faded stuff was dirty and ragged, as hers had been, Mliss had never been known to apply to it any childish term of endearment. She never exhibited it in the presence of other children. It was put severely to bed in a hollow tree near the schoolhouse, and only allowed exercise during Mliss's rambles. Fulfilling a stern duty to her doll, as she would to herself, it knew no luxuries. Now Mrs. Morpher, obeying a commendable impulse, bought another doll and gave it to Mliss. The child received it gravely and curiously. The master, on looking at it one day, fancied he saw a slight resemblance in its round red cheeks and mild blue eyes to Clytemnestra. It became evident before long that Mliss had also noticed the same resemblance. Accordingly, she hammered its waxen head on the rocks when she was alone, and sometimes dragged it with a string round its neck to and from school. At other times, setting it up on her desk, she made a pincushion of its patient and inoffensive body. Whether this was done in revenge of what she considered a second figurative obtrusion of Clitty's excellences upon her, or whether she had an intuitive appreciation of the rights of certain other heathens, and, indulging in that fetish ceremony, imagined that the original of her wax model would pine away and finally die, is a metaphysical question I shall not now consider. In spite of these moral vagaries, the master could not help noticing in her different tasks the working of a quick, restless and vigorous perception. She knew neither the hesitancy nor the doubts of childhood. Her answers in class were always slightly dashed with audacity. Of course, she was not infallible, but her courage and daring in passing beyond her own death and that of the floundering little swimmers around her, in their minds outweighed all errors of judgment. Children are not better than grown people in this respect, I fancy, and whenever the little red hand flashed above her desk there was a wandering silence, and even the master was sometimes oppressed with a doubt of his own experience and judgment. Nevertheless, certain attributes, which at first amused and entertained his fancy, began to afflict him with grave doubts. He could not but see that Mliss was revengeful, irreverent, and willful, that there was but one better quality which pertained to her semi-savage disposition, the faculty of physical fortitude and self-sacrifice, and another, though not always an attribute of the noble savage, truth. Mliss was both fearless and sincere. Perhaps in such a character the adjectives were synonymous. 
The master had been doing some hard thinking on this subject, and had arrived at that conclusion quite common to all who think sincerely that he was generally the slave of his own prejudices, when he determined to call on the Reverend McSnagley for advice. The decision was somewhat humiliated to his pride, as he and McSnagley were not friends. But he thought of Mliss, and the evening of their first meeting, and perhaps with a pardonable superstition that it was not chance alone that had guided her willful feet to the schoolhouse, and perhaps with a complacent consciousness of the rare magnanimity of the act, he choked back his dislike, and went to McSnagley. The reverend gentleman was glad to see him. Moreover, he observed that the master was looking peartish, and hoped he had got over the neuralgia and rheumatism. He himself had been troubled with a dumb eager since last conference, but he had learned to wrestle and pray. Pausing a moment to enable the master to write his certain method of curing the dumb agar upon the book and volume of his brain, Mr. McSnagley proceeded to inquire after Sister Morpher. "'She is in adornment to Christianity, and has a likely grown young family,' added Mr. McSnagley. "'And there is that mannerly young gal, so well-behaved, Miss Clitty.' In fact, Clitty's perfections seemed to affect him to such an extent that he dwelt for several minutes upon them. The master was doubly embarrassed. In the first place, there was an enforced contrast with poor Mliss in all this praise of Clitty. Secondly, there was something unpleasantly confidential in his tone of speaking of Mrs. Morpher's earliest born, so that the master, after a few futile efforts to say something natural, found it convenient to recall another engagement, and left without asking the information required. But in his after-reflections, somewhat unjustly giving the Reverend Mr. McSnagley the full benefit of having refused it. Perhaps this rebuff placed the master and pupil once more in the close communion of old. The child seemed to notice the change in the master's manner, which had of late been constrained, and in one of their long postprandial walks she stopped suddenly, and mounting a stump, looked full in his face with big searching eyes. "'You ain't mad?' said she, with an interrogative shake of the black braids. "'No.' "'Nor bothered?' "'No.' "'Nor hungry?' Hunger was to Mliss a sickness that might attack a person at any moment.' No. Nor thinking of her? Of whom, Lissy? That white girl. This was the latest epithet invented by Mliss, who was a very dark brunette, to express Clytemnestra. No. Upon your word? A substitute for hope you'll die, proposed by the master. Yes. And sacred honour? Yes. Then Mliss gave him a fierce little kiss, and, hopping down, fluttered off. For two or three days after that she condescended to appear more like other children, and be, as she expressed it, good. Two years had passed since the master's advent at Smith's Pocket, and as his salary was not large, and the prospects of Smith's Pocket eventually becoming the capital of the state not entirely definite, he contemplated a change. He had informed the school trustees privately of his intentions, but educated young men of unblemished moral character being scarce at that time, he consented to continue his school term through the winter to early spring. None else knew of his intention except his one friend, a Dr. Duchesne, a young Creole physician known to the people of Wingdom as Duchesne. He never mentioned it to Mrs. Morpher, Clitty, or any of his scholars. His reticence was partly the result of a constitutional indisposition to fuss, partly a desire to be spared the questions and surmises of vulgar curiosity, and partly that he never really believed he was going to do anything before it was done. He did not like to think of Mliss. It was a selfish instinct, perhaps, which made him try to fancy his feeling for the child was foolish, romantic, and unpractical. He even tried to imagine that she would do better under the control of an older and sterner teacher. Then she was nearly eleven, and, in a few years, by the rules of Red Mountain, would be a woman. 
he had done his duty. After Smith's death, he addressed letters to Smith's relatives, and received one answer from a sister of Melissa's mother. Thanking the master, she stated her intention of leaving the Atlantic States for California with her husband in a few months. This was a slight superstructure for the airy castle which the master pictured from Melissa's home, but it was easy to fancy that some loving, sympathetic woman, with the claims of kindred, might better guide her wayward nature. Yet, when the master had read the letter, Mliss listened to it carelessly, received it submissively, and afterward cut figures out of it with her scissors, supposed to represent Clytemnestra, labelled the white girl, to prevent mistakes, and impaled them upon the outer walls of the schoolhouse. When the summer was about spent, and the last harvest had been gathered in the valleys, the master bethought him of gathering in a few ripened shoots of the young idea, and of having his harvest home, or examination. So the savants and professionals of Smith's pocket were gathered to witness that time-honoured custom of placing timid children in a constrained position, and bullying them as in a witness-box. As usual in such cases, the most audacious and self-possessed were the lucky recipients of the honours. The reader will imagine that in the present instance Mliss and Clitty were pre-eminent, and divided public attention. Mliss with her clearness of material perception and self-reliance, Clitty with her placid self-esteem and saint-like correctness of deportment. The other little ones were timid and blundering. Mliss's readiness and brilliancy, of course, captivated the greatest number, and provoked the greatest applause. Mliss's antecedents had unconsciously awakened the strongest sympathies of a class whose athletic forms were ranged against the walls, or whose handsome bearded faces looked in at the windows. But Mliss's popularity was overthrown by an unexpected circumstance. McSnackley had invited himself, and had been going through the pleasing entertainment of frightening the more timid pupils by the vaguest and most ambiguous questions delivered in an impressive funereal tone. And Mliss had soared into astronomy, and was tracking the course of our spotted ball through space, and keeping time with the music of the spheres, and defining the tethered orbits of the planets, when McSnackley impressively arose. Lissy, you were speaking of the revolutions of this year earth at the movements of the sun, and I think you said it had been a doing of it since the creation, huh? Liss nodded a scornful affirmative. Well, war that the truth? said McSnackley, folding his arms. Yes, said Liss, shutting up her little red lips tightly. The handsome outlines at the windows peered further in the schoolroom, and a saintly Raphael face with blond beard and soft blue eyes, belonging to the biggest scamp in the diggings, turned toward the child and whispered, "'Stick to it, Mliss!' The reverend gentleman heaved a deep sigh, and cast a compassionate glance at the master, then at the children, and then rested his look on Clitty. That young woman softly elevated her round white arm. Its seductive curves were enhanced by a gorgeous and massive specimen bracelet, the gift of one of her humblest worshippers, worn in honour of the occasion. There was a momentary silence. Clitty's round cheeks were very pink and soft. Clitty's big eyes were very bright and blue. Clitty's low-necked white book muslin rested softly on Clitty's white plump shoulders. Clitty looked at the master, and the master nodded. Then Clitty spoke softly. Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, and it obeyed him. There was a low hum of applause in the schoolroom, a triumphant expression on McSnackley's face, a grave shadow on the master's, and a comical look of disappointment reflected from the windows. Mliss skimmed rapidly over her astronomy, and then shut the book with a loud snap. A groan burst from McSnackley, 
an expression of astonishment from the schoolroom, a yell from the windows as Mliss brought her red fist down on the desk with the emphatic declaration, "'It's a damn lie! I don't believe it!' Chapter 4 The long, wet season had drawn near its close. Signs of spring were visible in the swelling buds and rushing torrents. The pine forests exhaled the fresher spicery. The azaleas were already budding, the cyanothus getting ready its lilac livery for spring. On the green upland, which climbed Red Mountain at its southern aspect, the long spike of the monk's hood shot up from its broad-leaved stool, and once more shook its dark blue bells. Again the billow above Smith's grave was soft and green, its crest just tossed with the foam of daisies and buttercups. The little graveyard had gathered a few new dwellers in the past year, and the mounds were placed two by two by the little paling until they reached Smith's grave, and there there was but one. General superstition had shunned it, and the plot beside Smith was vacant. There had been several placards posted about the town, intimating that, at a certain period, a celebrated dramatic company would perform for a few days a series of side-splitting and screaming farces that, alternating pleasantly with this, there would be some melodrama and a grand divertisement which would include singing, dancing, etc. These announcements occasioned a great fluttering among the little folk, and were the theme of much excitement and great speculation among the master's scholars. The master had promised Mliss, to whom this sort of thing was sacred and rare, that she should go, and on that momentous evening the master and Mliss assisted. The performance was the prevalent style of heavy mediocrity, the melodrama was not bad enough to laugh at, nor good enough to excite. But the master, turning warily to the child, was astonished, and felt something like self-accusation in noticing the peculiar effect upon her excitable nature. The red blood flushed in her cheeks at each stroke of her panting little heart. Her small, passionate lips were slightly parted to give vent to her hurried breath. Her widely opened lids threw up and arched her black eyebrows. She did not laugh at the dismal comicalities of the funny man, for Melissa seldom laughed, nor was she discreetly affected to the delicate extremes of the corner of a white handkerchief, as was the tender-hearted Clitty, who was talking with her fellow and ogling the master at the same moment. But when the performance was over, and the green curtain fell on the little stage, Melissa drew a long, deep breath, and turned to the master's grave face with a half-apologetic smile and wary gesture. Then she said, "'Now take me home.' and dropped the lids of her black eyes, as if to dwell once more in fancy on the mimic stage. On their way to Mrs. Morpher's, the master thought proper to ridicule the whole performance. Now he shouldn't wonder if Mliss thought that the young lady who acted so beautifully was really in earnest, and in love with a gentleman who wore such fine clothes. Well, if she were in love with him, it was a very unfortunate thing. "'Why?' said Mliss, with an upward sweep of the drooping lid. Oh, well, he couldn't support his wife at his present salary, and pay so much a week for his fine clothes, and then they wouldn't receive as much wages if they were married as if they were merely lovers, that is, added the master, if they are not already married to somebody else. But I think the husband of the pretty young countess takes the tickets at the door, or pulls up the curtain, or snuffs the candles, or does something equally refined and elegant. As to the young man with nice clothes, which are really nice now, and must cost at least two and a half or three dollars— not to speak of that mantle of red drugget which I happen to know the price of, for I bought some of it for my room once. As to this young man, Lissy, he's a pretty good fellow, and if he does drink occasionally, I don't think people ought to take advantage of it and give him black eyes and throw him in the mud. Do you? 
I am sure he might owe me two dollars and a half a long time before I would throw it up in his face, as the fellow did the other night at Wingdom. Bliss had taken his hand in both of hers, and was trying to look in his eyes, which the young man kept as resolutely averted. Bliss had a faint idea of irony, indulging herself sometimes in a species of sardonic humour which was equally visible in her actions and her speech. But the young man continued in this strain until they had reached Mrs. Morpheus, and he had deposited Bliss in her maternal charge. Waving the invitation of Mrs. Morpher to refreshment and rest, and shading his eyes with his hand to keep out the blue-eyed Clytemnestra's siren glances, he excused himself and went home. For two or three days after the advent of the dramatic company, Bliss was late at school, and the master's usual Friday afternoon ramble was for once omitted, owing to the absence of his trustworthy guide. As he was putting away his books and preparing to leave the schoolhouse, a small voice piped at his side. "'Please, sir?' The master turned, and there stood Aristides Morpher. "'Well, my little man,' said the master, impatiently, "'what is it? Quick!' "'Please, sir, me and Kirk think that Melissa is going to run away again.' "'What's that, sir?' said the master, with that unjust testiness with which we always receive disagreeable news. "'Why, sir, she don't stay home any more, and Kirk and me see her talking with one of those actor-fellows, and she's with him now, and please, sir, yesterday she told Kirk and me she could make a speech as well as Miss Celestina Mercy, and she spouted right off by heart.' And the little fellow paused in a collapsed condition. "'What actor?' asked the master. "'Him as wears a shiny hat, and hair, and gold pin, and gold chain,' said the just Aristides, putting periods for commas to eke out his breath. The master put on his gloves and hat, feeling an unpleasant tightness in his chest and thorax, and walked out in the road. Aristides trotted along by his side, endeavouring to keep pace with his short legs to the master's strides, when the master stopped suddenly, and Aristides bumped up against him. "'Where were they talking?' asked the master, as if continuing the conversation. "'At the arcade,' said Aristides. When they reached the main street, the master paused. "'Run down home,' said he to the boy. If Mliss is there, come to the arcade and tell me. If she isn't there, stay home. Run! And off trotted the short-legged Aristides. The arcade was just across the way, a long, rambling building containing a bar-room, billiard-room, and restaurant. As the young man crossed the plaza, he noticed that two or three of the passers-by turned and looked after him. He looked at his clothes, took out his handkerchief, and wiped his face before he entered the bar-room. It contained the usual number of loungers, who stared at him as he entered. One of them looked at him so fixedly and with such a strange expression that the master stopped and looked again, and then saw it was only his own reflection in a large mirror. This made the master think that perhaps he was a little excited, and so he took up a copy of the Red Mountain Banner from one of the tables and tried to recover his composure by reading the column of advertisements. He then walked through the bar-room, through the restaurant, and into the billiard-room. The child was not there. In the latter apartment, a person was standing by one of the tables, with a broad-brimmed, glazed hat on his head. The master recognized him as the agent of the dramatic company. He had taken a dislike to him at their first meeting, from the peculiar fashion of wearing his beard and hair. Satisfied that the object of his search was not there, he turned to the man with a glazed head. He had noticed the master, but tried that common trick of unconsciousness in which vulgar natures always fail. Balancing a billiard cue in his hand, he pretended to play with a ball in the centre of the table. The master stood opposite to him until he raised his eyes. When their glances met, the master walked up to him. 
He had intended to avoid a scene or quarrel, but when he began to speak, something kept rising in his throat and retarded his utterance, and his own voice frightened him. It sounded so distant, low, and resonant. "'I understand,' he began, "'that Melissa Smith, an orphan and one of my scholars, has talked with you about adopting your profession. Is that so?' The man with the glazed hat leaned over the table and made an imaginary shot that sent the ball spinning round the cushions. Then, walking round the table, he recovered the ball and placed it upon the spot. This duty discharged, getting ready for another shot, he said, "'Suppose she has?' The master choked up again, but, squeezing the cushion of the table in his gloved hand, he went on. "'If you are a gentleman, I have only to tell you that I am her guardian and responsible for her career. You know as well as I do the kind of life you offer her. As you may learn of anyone here, I have already brought her out of an existence worse than death.' out of the streets and the contamination of vice. I am trying to do so again. Let us talk like men. She has neither father, mother, sister, or brother. Are you seeking to give her an equivalent for these? The man with the glazed hat examined the point of his cue, and then looked around for somebody to enjoy the joke with him. I know that she is a strange, willful girl, continued the master, but she is better than she was. I believe that I have some influence over her still. I beg and hope, therefore, that you will take no further steps in this matter, but as a man, as a gentleman, leave her to me. I am willing. But here something rose again in the master's throat, and the sentence remained unfinished. The man with the glazed head, mistaking the master's silence, raised his head with a coarse, brutal laugh, and said in a loud voice, "'Want her yourself, do you? That cock won't fight here, young man.' The insult was more in the tone than in the words, more in the glance than tone, and more in the man's instinctive nature than all these. The best appreciable rhetoric to this kind of animal is a blow. The master felt this, and, with his pent-up, nervous energy finding expression in the one act, he struck the brute full in his grinning face. The blow sent the glazed head one way and the cue another, and tore the glove and skin from the master's hand from knuckles to joint. It opened up the corners of the fellow's mouth, and spoiled the peculiar shape of his beard for some time to come. There was a shout, an imprecation, a scuffle, and the trampling of many feet. Then the crowd parted right and left, and two sharp, quick reports followed each other in rapid succession. Then they closed again about his opponent, and the master was standing alone. He remembered picking bits of burning wadding from his coat-sleeve with his left hand. Someone was holding his other hand. Looking at it, he saw it was still bleeding from the blow but his fingers were clenched around the handle of a glittering knife. He could not remember when or how he got it. The man who was holding his hand was Mr. Morpher. He hurried the master to the door, but the master held back, and tried to tell him as well as he could with his parched throat about Mliss. "'It's all right, my boy,' said Mr. Morpher. "'She's home.' And they passed out into the street together. As they walked along, Mr. Morpher said that Mliss had come running into the house a few moments before, and had dragged him out, saying that somebody was trying to kill the master at the arcade. Wishing to be alone, the master promised Mr. Morpher that he would not seek the agent again that night, and parted from him, taking the road toward the schoolhouse. He was surprised in nearing it to find the door open, still more surprised to find Mliss sitting there. The master's nature, as I have hinted before, had, like most sensitive organizations, a selfish basis. The brutal taunt thrown out by his late adversary still rankled in his heart. It was possible, he thought, that such a construction might be put upon his affection for the child, which at best was foolish and quixotic. 
besides had she not voluntarily abnegated his authority and affection and what had everybody else said about her why should he alone combat the opinion of all and be at last obliged tacitly to confess the truth of all they predicted and he had been a participant in a low bar-room fight with a common boor and risked his life to prove what what had he proved nothing what would the people say what would his friends say what would mcsnackley say in his self-accusation the last person he should have wished to meet was mliss he entered the door and going up to his desk told the child in a few cold words that he was busy and wished to be alone as she rose he took her vacant seat and sitting down buried his head in his hands when he looked up again she was still standing there she was looking at his face with an anxious expression did you kill him she asked no said the master that's what i gave you the knife for said the child quickly gave me the knife repeated the master in bewilderment yes gave you the knife i was there under the bar saw you hit him saw you both fall he dropped his old knife i gave it to you why didn't you stick him said Melis rapidly with an expressive twinkle of the black eyes and a gesture of the little red hand the master could only look his astonishment yes said Melis. if you'd asked me i told you i was off with the play-actors why was i off with the play-actors because you wouldn't tell me he was going away i knew it i heard you tell the doctor so i wasn't going to stay here alone with those morphers i'd rather die first with a dramatic gesture which was perfectly consistent with her character she drew from her bosom a few limp green leaves and holding them out at arm's length said in her quick vivid way and in the queer pronunciation of her old life which she fell into when unduly excited that's the poison plant you said would kill me i'll go with the play actors or i'll eat this and die here i don't care which i won't stay here where they hate and despise me neither would you let me if you didn't hate and despise me too the passionate little breast heaved and two big tears peeped over the edge of Melissa's eyelids but she whisked them away with the corner of her apron as if they had been wasps if you lock me up in jail said Melissa fiercely to keep me from the play actors i'll poison myself father killed himself why shouldn't i you said a mouthful of that root would kill me and i always carry it here and she struck her breast with a clenched fist the master thought of the vacant plot beside smith's grave and of the passionate little figure before him seizing her hands in his and looking full into her truthful eyes he said lissy will you go with me the child put her arms around his neck and said joyfully yes but now tonight tonight and hand in hand they passed into the road the narrow road that had once brought her weary feet to the master's door, and which it seemed she should not tread again alone. The stars glittered brightly above them. For good or ill the lesson had been learned, and behind them the school of Red Mountain closed upon them forever. End of Mliss